Abel, you want to hand just hand these out? To... She is better. She's still not 100%, but she's off of oxygen now. So, and and she was. She said she was feeling better. Um, so. That was yesterday, yesterday, so I think, yeah, she's definitely on the mend. Uh, Rick's doing great. I had coffee with him this morning. He said he's actually felt good the last few days. I actually thought he looked better today than he has in a month or more. Uh, he seemed to have, he said he, he was energetic and cheerful and so... As far as I know, um, I, does anybody know of anybody else that's down with COVID right now, other than the ones we've mentioned? I don't either. Um, uh, Temple is still recovering. Um, thanks. You go, Would you close the? Uh, okay, yeah. Great. Um, Temple's still recovering from her surgery, I think, some pain, and they got a hospital bed for her. You know, her bedroom's upstairs, so they've moved her where she can be downstairs. So uh, continue to, to pray for her. I didn't realize that thing was that loud. Yes, sir. Speak loud so everybody can hear you. Oh, wow. Do they live here or? Okay. Um, that's what Lee was telling me, yeah. He's the local guy that uh, started Godtell. Um, all right, well, let's, let's pray. Yes, sir. Stacy doesn't have a son. Okay. Okay. You know which daughter? Okay, Rebecca. Rebecca and Drew. Okay. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight, and uh, with this illness that's going around, we know illnesses go around and that people die all the time of sickness, but this has certainly been a reminder to us that life is precious and short and that uh, we have no promise of tomorrow except in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, for all these that we've mentioned uh, uh, we, we again mentioned the Stavanoa family and the loss of Greg and um, the others that we've mentioned here that are either ill or passed away. We pray your mercies upon these families um, and upon our nation, upon the world. Um, may, uh, may the reality of life and death soak in deeply uh, and may we all be reminded that our lives are in your hands and um, encourage us tonight as we pray for those we love. Uh, thank you for hearing our prayers and blessing 
those in our midst that have recovered. And we commit all this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> this is our fourth uh, men's discipleship uh, meeting. And uh, tonight we'll be starting our discussion and talk about the Trinity. Um, I'm going to mention two thing, two sources that I found very helpful in my preparation. I use quite a few sources, but uh, uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I'd really recommend that book highly. Have you read that? Any, any of you read that book? It is really encouraging. It's very practical and, and uh, does a great job of helping us see why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. And then another, rather, a two-part essay, if you will, by Tim Bailey on what is the Trinity I found helpful as well, and I'll refer to them some in these talks. I decided to just, what I ended up doing, because I'm going to talk tonight, and and I think I'll talk second tomorrow, is this is kind of one long, uh, I don't want to scare you, we're going to stay in our time limits, but I'm going to be part of it tonight, part tomorrow, but... Uh, I kind of changed the order a little bit from what I originally thought I was going to do. Um, so I'm going to do a bit of an introduction to the whole subject of the Trinity and then get into uh, uh, the, two, the two aspects of this that I want to deal with. And remember, the whole point of this in four talks, and we're dealing with uh, an extremely big subject here, a deep subject, uh, we're scratching the surface but that's okay. That's what we have to do. We have to lay out some big picture things, help us think about this, uh, maybe think in some new ways that perhaps we haven't thought before. And I think it's always good to go back and realize that this is something that a lot of thought has been given to by others. Uh, so I'm going to start by just reading uh, a pretty powerful statement from the 5th century Athanasian Creed, which says, Whosoever will be saved. That's a pretty strong statement right out of the chute. Before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic or Orthodox faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. That is an extremely strong, powerful, and, and uh, a clear statement about the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. It is central to what makes Christianity absolutely distinct, uh, that, and that is because it has to do with the identity of God. Who, who is God? Which, which God are we worshiping? That's critical. And so the first commandment tells us that we shall have no other gods before him. The heart of our faith is nothing less than God himself. And every aspect of the gospel of creation, revelation, salvation, uh, is only, it's only Christian insofar as it is the creation, the revelation, and the salvation of this triune God. Of course, God is mysterious, but that doesn't mean that he can't be known. Uh, The mystery, to some degree, has been, can be revealed. Uh, The secret can be told 
which he has done in a variety of ways. And that's going to be kind of the theme of what I want to deal with. Um, so, for example, Romans 1 tells us what may be known about God is manifest in them, that is, all people, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We're going to come back to that and talk about in what ways the creation uh, reveals some of the details about God himself. Moreover, he has made himself known through his representatives in Scripture. God, as Hebrews 1 says, uh, who at various times and in various ways spoke to our, spoke to the fathers by the prophets, Old Testament, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And so we have both the, the, uh, the scriptures as well as the creation to inform us and to tell us about God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, of course, asks uh, the question, question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Um, and so who else or what else do you know that is infinite or eternal or unchanging? These concepts are outside of our experience. So I want to draw a comparison here with the Trinity. Uh, nevertheless, these concepts are really uh, critical to our understanding of who God is. As we'll see, God has also revealed uh, that, he, that he is triune, uh, and this too is critical to our understanding of who he is. My point there is that there are any number of, aspe- of the aspects of the attributes of God that are foreign to us, uh, but we're called upon to think about them, to at least grasp them to some degree. And so we're used to thinking in terms of uh, God being one person, not three. So when we come to the Trinity, we feel like sometimes we're trying to squeeze two extra people into our understanding of who God is. Uh, And that is, uh, to say the least, rather hard. And then hard things get left undone. And so because the Trinity is difficult, uh, as I, you start thinking about infinite or you start talking about eternal, uh, your brain starts to hurt pretty quick. Um, and the same thing with the Trinity. And so because it's hard, our temptation is to say, well, it's hard, so let's not do it. Let's just not spend a lot of time with it. Let's check the box and say, yeah, we believe that, and then scoot it to the side and say that's incomprehensible. Uh, but the Trinity, rather than then, the Trinity, rather than being central, becomes this kind of awkward appendix for many Christians. Uh, but I want to give you a, a comparison here. For example, in Islam, the Quran explicitly and sharply distinguishes Allah from the God described by Jesus. So here's from the Quran: Say not Trinity. Deist, it will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him, far exalted is he above having a son. Say, he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom we all, whom all depend. 
He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. We get a very different God with Allah. And we get a very different result. A very different view of the world. Very different societies, very different families. Michael Reeves concludes this. He says, in other words, Allah is a single person God. In no sense is he a father. He begets not. And in no sense does he have a son, nor is he begotten. He is one person and not three. Allah, then, is an utterly different sort of being to the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is not just in, in, uh, incompatibly different numbers we are dealing with here. That difference, as we will see, is going to mean that Allah exists and functions in a completely different way than the Father, Son, and Spirit. Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God, shows page after page how evangelicals are Trinitarian to the core, but often unconsciously, or not self-consciously. So, for example, he uses an analogy that a fish uh, never thinks about water. They live and move and find their way of life in it. And similarly, he says evangelicals rarely think about the Trinity, but our prayer lives reflect the Trinity as we pray to God the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So apart from the Trinity, we wouldn't know how to pray. Excuse me. So um, with the Trinity, uh, we do know how to. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father. We must pray in the name of Jesus, God's Son. And uh, when we don't know how to pray, God helps us. The Spirit groans within us. Even if we have trouble using words to express the Trinity, the Trinity does meet us in our prayers. And just because we haven't been self-conscious about the Trinity doesn't mean that we, sh- that we shouldn't be. We should. So, for example, our families suffer when we don't commit ourselves to the Trinity openly. I mean, if you think about it, if we really had a greater understanding of this relationship of the three persons and how that impacts our families. Um, The truth is there is no teaching more practical than the Trinity. Our understanding of fathers, and I'm going to argue later, even mothers, parents, children, things like love, economy, all of these and much more are built on a Trinitarian model. And if we're created in the image of God then who God is must be relevant to who we are and how we're supposed to live. So at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. So we have this, this reference to the plural, and the Hebrew had a singular. It didn't have to, that didn't have to happen. That's on purpose. And when he says make man, I think uh, certainly we're going to see he made them male and female. And so we are made in the image, in some sense, of the triune God. That doesn't mean in every sense, 
And that's one of the things we're going to learn to have to think about is to say that this is like that doesn't mean it's identical. Um, so let's start with a basic statement made in 1 John and, and kind of go from here and, and begin to wade into this. He, First uh, John, John 4.8, He who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. Be easy to go right past that. But I want to give uh, C.S. Lewis makes uh, some, a comment about this. He says, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. In the opening paragraphs of Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity, he says, God is love. Those three words could hardly be more bouncy they seem lively, lovely, and as warm, warming as a crackling fire. But God is a trinity? No, hardly the same effect. That just sounds cold and stodgy, all quite understandable. But the aim of, of this book is to stop the madness. Yes, the trinity can be presented as a fusty and irrelevant dogma. But the truth is that God is love because... God is a trinity. This book then will simply be about growing in our enjoyment of God and seeing how God's triune being makes all his ways beautiful. It's a chance to taste and see that the Lord is good, to have your heart won and yourself refreshed, for it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we could shave off of God, we would not be relieving Him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing Him of precisely what is so delightful about Him. For God is triune, and it is as triune that He is so good and so desirable. So God is love, and love can't be solitary. That is, love can't be love if there is no one else to direct that love toward. There has to be an object. So if God is love, he must always have someone toward whom that love is directed. Think about this. If God were solitary, if he were only one person, then love could only come into play after the other person came into existence. I already referred to that. Um, so if God were simply one person, he could not be love. But we already know from God's word that at his core, he is love. And the Trinity shows God's love within the Godhead. So the Trinity is teaching us that God is one in essence, yet three persons. Roy's going to have more to say about that in his talk. Uh, so the persons of the Trinity are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one in that uh, each possess the same deity, that is, what makes them God. But they are distinguished as persons having eternal relationships within the Godhead. Remember, Jesus commanded 
the great commission, in the great commission, his, his command in the great commission was baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not names, but the name singular. And within the one true God are relationships defined by love. They've always existed, so love has always existed. So at the core of this God of love are three persons who are, who, this is interesting too, you ever heard that, you know, God created us because he was lonely? He wasn't lonely. Um, they were, the three persons were complete without us. God is love without us. He doesn't need us. This is what makes God holy. He's separate from us. He's complete without us and perfect in every way. So love can't be broken because no person of the Trinity will ever cease to exist. They are eternal and we are not. Tim Bailey writes, a holy God of love intrudes upon us. Uh, He doesn't need us. Worse yet, uh, he is described as he and makes demands upon us. We love our liberty, not liberty from sin, but liberty from thou shalt not. Uh, that much is obvious in the world, but sadly it is not limited to the world. So-called evangelicals have been trying to neuter God by denying his fatherhood and making love innocuous, stripping it of any hint of demands. They don't want God to be true love, but if we strip God of his fatherhood, we have neutered him, and such a God is no true God. Such a God is like a dog who only wants what we want, and the kind of love we attribute to him isn't love. It's puppy love. We want a lap dog, not a holy trinity. So love begins with God, and the source is the Father. So now I want to move from that to begin to talk about how can God be known, this mysterious God. Every new thing feels weird. That's true. Good things and bad things. You know, for those of you who, you know, are married and, and, uh, you had that first time you held your wife's hand as your girlfriend. And that was good, but it was a little weird. It feels a little strange. You're not used to doing that. And you can multiply that. How many new experiences have you had? New things you don't know anything about. Maybe you're a little intimidated. Maybe you're a little scared. Um, there's all kinds of emotions that go with new things. Uh, new people, new situations, new food, new subjects. With our limited categories, we're, though, when we, when we come across something new, we're always trying to fit that new thing in to categories that we already think we know. What is this like? This forces us then at times then to have to expand our categories and think in new ways. Nevertheless, we continue to try to integrate new information with the whole. And so as we try to wrap our minds around it, we ask, what is this new thing or person like? We are completely known by God, but we're also called to know him. And so the theme of my two talks on the Trinity lays out the twofold answer to this question of how God may be known. 
If he is to be known at all, God must, and I will argue God has, revealed himself. And he has revealed himself to be triune and that this is essential to who he is. We can know him. But what he says, that is what he has told us about himself in Scripture, that's one way. And I'm going to argue and, and kind of swim upstream here against what some people have said, and this will be the bulk of what I deal with tomorrow. Uh, I think we can also, we can know him partially uh, by analogy through the things he has made. And I want you to think about it when we, as we get to that and be willing to push back because I'm thinking through it. Uh, in a new way myself. Together, these two means of revelation, special and general, come together to give us uh, understanding within our limited scope. And I always think of this as like two lenses on a telescope. Um, I have a little telescope, and there's the, the lens in the end, and then there's an eyepiece. And if you take the eyepiece out and you look through it up at the sky, you can see objects, but they're blurry and you're not quite, it's, it's light and dark and you kind of make out a circle. But if you put that eyepiece in, it brings it in, and you can twist that eyepiece and sharpen the focus, then that comes together and you can see planets and even crescent shapes, uh, even moons around Jupiter or, or rings around Saturn, that kind of thing. But those two, so scripture is like that eyepiece. And the, the big uh, general lens is like general revelation. But together, they bring into focus and enable us to see what we otherwise couldn't see. Um, another, sometimes, you know, if you ran across some, let's say you were out in the woods and this would be a sci-fi movie, and you came into this big clearing and there was a giant machine in the middle of the field with all kinds of buttons and lights and gadgets no idea what this is. I've never seen anything like this before. And you start to explore it, and you're trying to figure out what it does. You know, what is this button? What is this lever? What is this? And somebody says, hey, wait a minute. I just found the, uh, it says here, owner's manual. <laughs> uh, oh, I don't need that. You're like most guys. You're going to put something together. You don't need instructions, do you? Uh, well, the scriptures are like the owner's manual. They enable us to look at the thing and understand it and interpret it. Oh, I, okay, that says that's a such and such. Don't don't push that button. <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, so in other words, the Word of God comes together with what God does, His words and His actions, and enables us to know Him. Uh, our knowledge of Him is sufficient, but it's certainly not exhaustive. Again, Reeves explains, God is a mystery in that who he is and what he is like are secrets, things we would never have worked out by ourselves. But this triune God has revealed himself to us, thus the Trinity is not some piece of inexplicable apparent nonsense like a square circle or an interesting theologian. Rather, because the triune God has revealed himself, we can understand the Trinity. That is not to say we can exhaust our knowledge of God, comprehend and wrap our brains around him, simply cramming in a few bits of information before moving on to some other doctrine. 
To know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. And while the uh, later church theologians would use philosophical terms and words not seen in the Bible, like the word Trinity, which is not in the Bible, they were not trying to add to God's revelation of himself. Uh, as if Scripture were insufficient, they were trying to express the truth of who God is as he's revealed in Scripture, particularly as they were trying to articulate Scripture's message in the face of those who were distorting it in one way or another. And for each dis- new distortion, a new language of response was needed. In other words, there have been several Christological heresies that have emerged that got it wrong and historically needed to be answered. And the handout I gave you uh, would delineate at least some of the major Christological heresies that through church history. And a lot of times that's how doctrine develops. Somebody is coming in with a new argument and now it's going to be answered and sometimes new vocabulary gets introduced in the process. Now, some of this I've said before, but it applies to this subject um, Most of what we know, most of what you know, you know by authority. Um, We've been told by someone we trust. Maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a teacher, a pastor, a book, a documentary. Um, Aaron, I called Aaron or texted his dad the other day to ask him about a bird that was in my front yard, sent a picture, and he was able to tell me. Um, I'm assuming... He was able to know that because he read a book or looked it up. Somewhere along the way, somebody told him what that bird was. And then now he told me. And then the next time I see it, I'll have to text him again and say, what was that bird? But he'll remember. Um, Most of what we know or think we know, we actually know because somebody told us. Um, Again, I've never seen... Japan, but I believe it exists. I've seen books and pictures and watched the news. And and so the issue finally gets down to, do I trust the source that's telling me this thing? I have, a, uh, I have never observed the details of a so-called simple cell. But I trust Michael Denton, who's a medical doctor, holds a Ph.D. in developmental biology from King's College London and is a senior research fellow in human molecular genetics at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And he wrote a book um, some years ago called uh, Evolution, a Theory in Crisis. And some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to read it. I like it, but it illustrates what I'm saying about how we know things even though we may not comprehend or understand it. After you hear this, uh, I know when I heard it for the first time, you know, I had that response of, wow. Even though I don't know it firsthand, uh, I'm knowing it secondhand. So here's what he says. To grasp the reality of life as it has been revealed by molecular biology, we must magnify a cell a thousand million times until it is 20 kilometers in diameter and resembles a giant airship large enough to cover a great city like London or New York. That's a single cell. 
What we would then see would be an object of unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. On the surface of the cell, we would see millions of openings like the portholes of a vast spaceship opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out. If we were to enter one of those openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity. The simplest of the functional components of the cell, the protein molecules, were astonishingly complex pieces of molecular machinery, each one consisting of about 3,000 atoms. What we would be witnessing would be an object resembling an immense automated factory, larger than any city and carrying out almost as many unique functions as all the manufacturing activities of man on earth, a factory which would have one capacity not equaled in any of our own most advanced machines, for it would be capable of replicating its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. So while I'm a long way from understanding the complexity of a cell, and I suspect Dr. Denton would say the same thing for himself, that doesn't mean we can't know some important and essential things about the cell. We can know God, who possesses knowledge that is certain and exhaustive and He is pleased to reveal his knowledge to us, some of it, by way of revelation. He's going to tell us. Then we too can know those things that he reveals with certainty, and we may infer other knowledge based on those certainties. The following is taken, and again, I've read this in years past, but Dr. Machen's uh, book, The Christian Faith in the Modern World, written in 1936, he said, how can we discover whether there is a God at all? I have something rather simple to say about that question at the very start. It's something that seems to me to be rather obvious, and yet it is something that is quite generally ignored. It is simply this that if we are to really know anything about God, it will probably be because God has chosen to tell it to us. Many persons seem to go on a very different assumption. They seem to think that if they are to know anything about God, they must discover God for themselves. That assumption seems to me to be extremely unlikely. Just supposing for the sake of argument that there is a being of such a kind uh, as that he may may with any propriety be called God it does seem antecedently very improbable that weak and limited creatures of a day such as we are should discover him by our own efforts without any will on his part to make himself known to us. At least I think we can say that a God who could be discovered in that way would hardly be worth discovering. A mere passive subject of human investigation is certainly not a living God who can satisfy the longing of our souls. A divine being that could be discovered by my efforts, apart from his gracious will to reveal himself to me and to others, would be either a mere name for a certain aspect of man's own nature, a God that we could find within us, or else, at best, a mere passive thing that would be subject to investigation like the substances that are analyzed in a laboratory. I think we ought to stick to that particular 
that principle rather firmly. I think we ought to be rather sure that we cannot know God unless God has been pleased to reveal himself to us. So as men, we in our finitude have access only to those things which it has pleased God to reveal to us in either the natural revelation of the created order or in the special revelation of Scripture. Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. Dr. Van Til explains, The facts of the universe are what they are because they express together the system of truth revealed in the Bible. What is meant by the idea of truth as found in Scripture does not, as noted, mean a logically penetrable system. God alone knows himself and all things of the created universe exhaustively. He has revealed himself to man, but he did not reveal himself exhaustively to man. Neither the created universe nor the Bible exhaustively reveals God to man, nor has man the capacity to receive such an exhaustive revelation. God reveals himself to man according to man's ability to receive that revelation. I'm reminded of the old Stephen Wright joke. He says, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? And so knowledge is that way. Um, In some systems, we find monotheism with its belief in only one God. In others, we find polytheism with its belief in many separate gods. But none of the pagan religions nor any of the systems of speculative philosophy have ever arrived at a Trinitarian conception of God. Lorraine Bettner said, The fact of the matter is that apart from supernatural revelation, there is nothing in human consciousness or experience which can give man the slightest clue to the distinctive God of the Christian faith, the triune, incarnate, redeeming, sanctifying God. Again, I'll go back to my telescope. Just take away the eyepiece and try to look through it and make sense of things. So we know him, God, by his words and by his works really the same way we know each other, right? If we meet somebody, we could go to coffee or have somebody over for dinner and say, tell me your story. You know, where did you grow up? When were you born? And where did you go to school? And what do you do? And we could have that kind of conversation and get to know someone. Or we could read a book about someone, a biography or autobiography. That's one way we could get to know someone. But if we're going to really get to know someone, we'd also spend time with them, right? We would see them in action. We'd see what they do. We'd see their family. We'd see the fruit of their labor. We would see them in all kinds of different settings and circumstances. And then we would say, well, I really know that person well. So if you're married, if you have children, you say, oh, these are the people I really know because I'm with them all the time. And I see them in all kinds of settings. And so we're going to know God the same way through his words, his special revelation, and his actions, his natural revelation, Except with God, those don't contradict each other. Sometimes our words and our actions do contradict each other. So you ever say something like, well, I thought I knew him, okay, until that news report came out (laughs) uh, about uh, something that I didn't know. 
But God is perfectly consistent. Both his words and actions stand in mutual support of one another and bear testimony to who he is. Again, Van Til observed, what Scripture emphasizes is that even apart from special revelation, men ought to see that God is the creator of the world. In other words, we know a person by what they say and what they do. So we have both natural and special revelation, right? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Hebrews 1 and 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, uh, has spoken in these last days to us by his Son. And we have the, the record of that in the Bible. So, for what I want to finish up with tonight is just, I want to run through some verses of Scripture very quickly. Um, you're familiar with a lot of them. Most of them are short, but giving us just a refresher and a foundation for the Trinity. And I'm going to end with a little summary that I found really useful if you were to jot it down and stick it in your Bible. If anybody ever asks you uh, to defend the Trinity, I think you could do that pretty quickly uh, with this little tool. Uh, so let's take a brief look at some of what Scripture says about the triune God. Tomorrow we're going to look at the question of how we might know God, uh, the, the Trinity, through certain analogies in life, things we could look at that teach us. So let's start with Jesus, John 17, 5. Now, Father, Jesus said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the, er- the world was. Keep in mind that God tells us in uh, Isaiah 42, 8, that he doesn't share his glory with another. Since Jesus has always had glory with the Father, he must be God. Because Jesus' two natures are unified, he told his disciples that anyone who sees him sees what? The Father. So since Jesus came to reveal the Father, his taking on the flesh of man is essential to revealing the Father. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential to salvation, and the Bible reveals this truth. Uh, it lies at the foundation of that of Christ's person. So the doctrine of the Trinity is that three persons subsist in one divine nature. Uh, it was one of the three persons, not the divine nature itself, that became incarnate. It was not the Godhead that became incarnate, but one of the persons of the Godhead. It was not the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but it was the Son alone who was incarnate. It was not God abstractly and unitedly, but God personally, the Word that was with God, that was God, that was made flesh. It wasn't, therefore, that which was common to the three persons that assumed our nature, but it was that which in the economy of the Trinity is distinguished from the others. It was, therefore, not the divine nature or essence, but a person who subsists in that divine nature equally with the others, yet who is distinguished in his relation to that divine nature from the other persons of the Trinity. So the doctrine of the Trinity is therefore essentially involved in the person and work of Christ. The one person who is God can become incarnate without involving the incarnation of the other two persons. 
If God were only one person, he couldn't rule and yet empty himself of it. He couldn't send and be sent. He couldn't be a lawgiver and also a voluntary subject. He couldn't make atonement and yet receive it. And he couldn't pour out wrath and yet endure it. Yet the scripture clearly teaches us that God came, was sent, was made flesh, but that God gave his only begotten son, sent his son, etc. So there are five elements found repeatedly throughout the Bible's text that are best interpreted through the lens of the Trinity. Number one, uh, there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. John 10.30, I and my Father are one. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. 1 Corinthians 8.4, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And Romans 3.30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Second, the Father is God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 4.6, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. John 20.17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. John 6.27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So, God the Father. Now, third, God the Son. The Son is God, I should say. Romans 9, 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John 20, verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 9.5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is God. <clears throat> Acts 5, 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? 
while it remained with you, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not uh, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 1 Corinthians 2.11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him, even so no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. John 15.26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then fifth, these three are distinct persons. John 14, 16 through 17, And I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So if there are three distinct persons that are God, but there is only one God, we are naturally led to the doctrine of the Trinity. One God who subsists in three persons. A verse that indicates the unity of these three distinct persons is Matthew 28:19, as we've already mentioned in the Great Commission, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, a singular name uh, because it's one being. Now, here's the summary uh, for quick reference. One way you could do this is start with Romans uh-huh, 3.30. Uh, if you wanted to even go in your Bible, if you knew to, if you said, okay, if I ever need to defend the Trinity, uh, you could just start uh, with Romans 3.30. I guess we can, I can uh, read these. Um, so since Romans 3.30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So there's the, there is only one God. And then you could write in your Bible right there with that verse, the next verse, uh, John 6, 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so there's um, a passage about God the Father. I actually have uh, three other verses here. You can use any of them about Jesus being God. I'll give those to you. John 20, 28. Um, I'll just go to that one. Let's do that. Um, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, speaking to Jesus. Uh, Romans 9, 5 or 2 Peter 1, 1 will also work there. And then Acts 5, 3 through 5. Um, that's the part about Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and then saying, 
you you lied to, you didn't lie to man you lied to God and then finally the three are distinct persons and that's John 14 verses 16 and 17 and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper uh, that he may abide with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So that's just, uh, again, a verse that indicates the unity of these three then would be Matthew 28:19 in the Great Commission, um, baptizing in the name of the three persons. And I'm going to wrap up with this, um, a couple of quick things. The Trinity in the Old Testament, B.B. Um, Warfield wrote... <clears throat> The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out in clearer view much of what is in it, but only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. That's true of many things in the Old Testament, right? We, until we get the New Testament, until we have Jesus teaching us about this and opening it up, then it starts to become clear. So in the first chapter of Genesis, as well as many other places, we find that the names of God are in the plural, Elohim, also Adonai, and with these plural forms of the divine names, singular verbs and adjectives are usually attached. Thus, it's a remarkable phenomenon in view of the fact that the Hebrew language also contained the singular term, El, meaning God, Along with the plural name, God sometimes uses plural pronouns in referring to himself. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Uh, Genesis 3.22, And Jehovah God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, spoken of Adam after the fall. Now, Genesis 11.7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language at the Tower of Babel. Uh, and in Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So, um, all right, I'll just uh, finish with this. Um, in these verses, we observe uh, counsel within the Trinity, that is, God speaking within himself. Uh, speaking with himself. He's not taking counsel from the angels, since angels aren't his counselors, but rather his servants and like man, infinitely below him in knowledge. If the divine nature itself, in the divine nature itself, the Bible teaches us that there is a plurality of personal powers which polytheism separated and sought to worship in isolation. Warfield wrote, in point of fact, the doctrine of the Trinity is purely a revealed doctrine. That is to say, it embodies a truth which has never been discovered, 
and is indiscoverable by natural reason alone. With all his searching, man has not been able to find out for himself the deepest things of God. Accordingly, ethnic thought has never attained a Trinitarian conception of God, nor does any ethnic religion present uh, in its representations of the divine being any analogy to the doctrine of the Trinity. So the easiest way to understand the Trinity is to believe the Word of God. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it so pastorally in question 25. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Answer, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. All right. Comments, questions, arguments. Uh, and you can take this in a whole new direction if you want to. But, um. Is that good? We talk about persons of the Trinity, and we refer to say Jesus, and we say Jesus, and we use personal pronouns to refer to Jesus. Jesus did this, he did that. Uh, the Spirit does things, and we refer often to the Spirit as a person, so we use personal pronoun to refer to the Spirit, which is appropriate. But when we refer to the Godhead, we end up doing the same thing, but it doesn't seem accurate to do that. We say God, and by God we mean the triune God, and we say He does this, or He is like this. Now we're using a personal pronoun, but not referring to a person, but the Godhead, who's not a person, He's the being. Yeah, first, second, and third person personal pronouns become uh, challenging, don't they? I'm wondering, I don't know, I don't want to nitpick it to death or anything. Is there a way? It seems like that would be confusing uh, in prayer language and that sort of thing. Of course, we're referring to the persons of the Trinity. We use personal pronouns. That's not a problem. But referring to God as a Trinity. But don't we have, uh, somebody help me here, but don't we, wouldn't we have that? I have to think about a particular psalm, but where we talk about Yahweh, that he does something. Is, is is Yahweh exclusive to the Father? No, it's the Lord. Um, so it, in that sense, it would seem that that just may be a limitation of our language. Because you, th- you think about, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that like Eskimos have a thousand words for snow or something. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but or, or, or at least six words. I don't know if it's a thousand. But... Um, Lee, were you going to chime in there? That, uh, God himself refers to I. He doesn't say we. I am that I am. I am that I am. And he refers to himself in a singular type of wording to Moses multiple times. But I think that's at least uh, he could say we. Yeah, it's kind of weird to talk about it. Yeah, it's hard to say we is that we is.
He does, well, I think the point is he does both, right? And that... Yes, and writers were at pains to make distinctions between the persons without compromising the deity of any of them. So in New Testament, Hathaos is what they call, is what the right, New Testament writers call God the Father, which is just Greek for God. And then they call Jesus Kyrios, which is Lord, and, but yet still having the divine nature. But they don't use the same name for, for, for the two I'm, one, I'm wondering if that may be what Warfield's referring to. There's not anything new here, but there is new light. There's, a, there's this expansion of our understanding of the redemptive work as Jesus is revealed. Out of curiosity, is there, and you would agree, that's the whole term, for the divine? No, in the Old Testament, we don't have, yeah, we don't have a notion of, I mean, there's not, the writers in the Old Testament are not operating on a Trinitarian understanding of the nature of God necessarily. So the words they're using aren't reflective of the, the tri-personal aspect of God. So we don't have, I don't think linguistically any hints of that. When they say Yahweh, actually they don't even say that, they're doing that, they don't say the word, but they're referring to one God. Yeah. I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. That's what we want to do. Yeah. Separate question. Um, yeah, I've heard atheists say this, that uh, an argument against the Trinity, that you know, if God is a father, then he's killing his son. That's child abuse. What? Uh, how, how do you engage with that argument? Well, that is, uh, actually I had a little conversation with somebody earlier today uh, regarding Abraham and Isaac. Uh, the same kind of thing, that how could God... This is, I think that's a case of putting God in the dock and saying uh, there's any number of things that in Scripture that people would bring indictments against God. He's harsh. He's this patriarchal tyrant that kills people. Um, but God is God, and God does not the potter have the right over the clay that he, he creates us, he brings us into existence, and, and that is the unique nature of God. So what's, what's true for us is not necessarily applicable to him. It's not a double standard because we're not the same beings. He's infinite in his knowledge, wisdom, power, his goodness, his justice. And so when he makes a determination to take a life, uh, he has justification for his actions that we wouldn't have. So we're forbidden to do certain things that he's not forbidden from. He could determine good from evil, for example, and he told Adam and Eve they couldn't, that that was his job, and their job was to listen to his word in regard to ethical things. And so I would just say because he's a different being, he's not a human being, he's not a creature, uh, he's transcendent, and therefore, uh, while, while I can't psychologically explain that in a way that would be satisfying, because I'm, what's happening there is my analogy to a human father is what's driving that thought. If a human father does that, we, we would say that was child abuse. Uh, and so I would say, well, a perfect divine being is not 
anything uh, is not in the same category. Any other thoughts on that? Yes, sir. Yeah, wouldn't that be a category of error in attempting to explain somebody far more complex than a human in human terms and reality falling short? So if you're saying it's like child abuse, well, a human being killing another human being is far different than God. And it seemed like, and correct me if I'm getting theology fuzzy, but it seemed like what God is doing is he's not killing another person. He's actually, I don't know, killing part of himself, sacrificing part of himself. It's not like it's a separate being. It's part. It's that, but it's also him. So the analogy starts, the critique falls apart because you're talking about a human being killing their human child. Well, it's not as simple as that with God. There's more wrapped up in his being. Than well, and again, what what's forbidden in Scripture, for example, is thou shalt not murder. It's not all killing. And in fact, it's appointed unto man once to die. So in a sense, God's going to kill everybody uh, if we mean by that take, you know, take them out of this world into the next. But because beings are eternal in that sense, I don't know, there's, there's other aspects of that that, like I say, it's more complex when we bring God into the picture here. It's not a one-for-one analogy. One of the things I'll be saying tomorrow about analogy and where you have to be extra careful with all analogies is analogies are meant to help us understand something being like something else in some narrow way, but not in every way. Uh, And we get into danger when we start trying to press analogies too far. So love is like a red, red rose. How? The thorns? (laughs) you know, there's there's some point at which we go, yeah, but a rose is not like love in other ways. So, and therefore, a rose is not love. It's a rose. It happens to have certain things. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's aroma. Uh, some poetic aspect of that that helps us grasp love better. But when we press any analogy too far, we run into to trouble. Yes, sir. I think it's on the atheist on this uh, particular objection, I think they misunderstand the, the nature of Christian, the Christian doctrine of uh, uh, Jesus' sacrifice. I mean, the, the Bible teaches that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Athanasius calls it the divine dilemma. God cursed sinful humans out of his justice, his just nature, but also because he's merciful. He would, he would reconcile that. But in his justice, he couldn't go back on his word. He couldn't take his curse away. The curse had to be satisfied. And so that made it necessary for Christ to suffer under the hand of his Father. And so that's a necessary component of the nature. I mean, it's weird to say Christ's suffering and death under the wrath of God is part of his nature. <laughs> that's sort of what we say. And the atheist in an objective, just misses that completely. That's the crux of the gospel, that God himself sacrificed his son on behalf of the sinner. And so while we were yet sinners, not after we got ourselves right, but right. while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were declared righteous in our sin. So I think that's difficult for the Christians to grasp. I think the atheists Well, another thing is, this is really part of the argument of the problem of evil. And that's what you know most people are pushing against. So if I, and, and some of you have heard this illustration, but if I tell you that I took my 
uh, three-year-old son into a room while six people held him down, and he screamed in terror while they stuck sharp objects in him, and I stood there and watched. What would you say about me as a father? But if I told you, what? He was bleeding to death, and they were having to sew him up immediately to keep him from dying. Now what would you say about me as a father? So, so well, what you say is, oh, there was a morally justifiable reason for you doing what you did. Oh, now, now, okay. And so if we say uh, the argument, God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil exists, so, so they say, well, that's the problem. God's either not all-good or he's not all-powerful because evil exists. But what if there's a, we interject another premise and we say, and there is a morally justifiable reason for the evil that exists? You say, well, what is it? I don't know. Oh, well, so let me just finish. So there's, there's not a logical problem. Well, how do you know there's a, a morally justifiable reason? Because God is good and he's all powerful and evil exists. Therefore, there must of necessity be a morally justifiable reason. And even if I don't know what it is, that leaves me with a psychological problem. I don't like that. And if I didn't tell you why I let somebody stick sharp objects into my son, you wouldn't like that. You would still be like, what's wrong with that guy? But God, and we see this in the book of Job, is not obligated to explain himself to us for things, you know, Again, Job, why me? And God never answers that question to Job directly. He basically says, well, I'm God, and you're not. And I'm taking care of you and all of this, and you're going to need to trust me. Just like a father might say to a three-year-old who couldn't understand an explanation if you gave it. Um, so anyway, you're going to say something else? We probably add Jesus, Jesus himself and his role in this. You know, Jason was saying that God is not like us. Absolutely. What else? Anything? One thing I want to emphasize, and, and I think it, it pushes us to have to think further, and I'll be doing some more of this tomorrow, and I assume the other guys will too, is what difference does this make, the Trinity? I mean, we can sit here and have philosophical discussions and push some of the, the harder questions, and we, I think we should, uh, but we also need to be thinking in terms of what kind of impact does this have. And I've illustrated some of that tonight when I was when I got started talking about the difference between Allah and a triune God. It produces a very different world. And again, at the heart of that is love. And that's not you know just some sentimental thing there, but actually it is uh, it is about community. Uh, it's about how we live together. We're not, so one of the questions I'll address tomorrow is in philosophy, there's this question of the one and the many. Um, so what's, what's more important, uh, you or the church? 
you, your wife, each of your children, or your family. You, as a citizen, or or your country. The one is the family. The one is the church. The one is the country. And the many are all the individuals. How does the Trinity, how does a triune God who created the world and created us in his image, how does that impact that challenge and that question? And we'll I'll let you ruminate on that. How does it affect your family, your relationship with your wife and your children? And how is that reflective of the Trinity. If our marriages are analogous to Christ and the church, if the tabernacle was analogous to the temple that's in heaven, and there and other things that we see uh, through, through the Bible like that, how do these analogies, those are not just kind of quaint illustrations In other words, our marriages are to genuinely reflect the reality of Christ in the church. And and so seeing the Trinity is if it's to be reflected, if if Trinity, if the Trinity is a community, a communion, and our family is a communion, and our church is a communion. And our community is a community and a communion. Not, they're not identical, obviously. But in what ways does that reflect a Trinitarian world created by a Trinitarian God? And so there are some pretty strong and powerful implications of the God that we worship and serve, and why going back to Athanasius's statement about how critical it is, again, I, I, I like to emphasize that the Trinity is not just some quaint theological obtuse footnote to, uh, for theologians to quibble over. Uh, you know, they old, uh, I think in medieval times, the, the argument over how many archangels can dance on the head of a pen People kind of laugh at that as some kind of silly thing, but it was actually an exercise to discuss uh, the, the spiritual realm, whether or not uh, it has extension. Um, does it? So, for example, if I put a dot on a on a whiteboard, how many attentions can be focused on that dot? Does your thought have, does your thought take up space? How many books could you set on it? That's one question, right? If I had a a dot on a table versus how many of us could focus our attention on that dot? So there's, there's a discussion about the difference between the spiritual realm and the physical realm and how they operate and interact with each other. I'm not trying to get into all that. Now my point is sometimes things on the surface look like, oh, that's, why are we spending any time on that? Because the answers to those things matter, and they're important. And if God has revealed himself as a trinity, and I think he has, then he thinks it's important. And so that's why, just one last thing, and I'll 
and see if there are any other questions. And we, uh, I, Roy, would you uh, mind leading us in a hymn? I want to sing tonight before we go. Would you pick out something that we can that we know and can sing? Something other than Psalm one? That was a joke. I don't think we're quite ready to. I don't think we're quite. I don't think we're quite quite ready to sing that one just yet. That'd be great. Um, but but think for example, how many times people will talk about eschatology, and because it's complicated or whatever. Uh, oh, I'm a. Have you heard the term? I'm a pan millennialist. Was that because it'll pan out in time? It, it's a way of dismissing it as unimportant. But is eschatology important? Absolutely. It has everything to do with what kind of world we're out building. Okay? Are we just trying to get people in, in, onto the lifeboat because the ship is sinking? Or are we building institutions and nations and, and communities and churches? Uh, well, what you think about the future has everything to do with what you do today. Ideas have consequences. The Trinity has consequences.